It was quiet. Too quiet, as they say. But the men were ready. The cavalry company dashed into town, a platoon charging in from the east and another striking from the north. Revolvers drawn, they were prepared to fight anyone who would dare get in the way of their plan to link up in the center plaza. Then, a cry went up from one of the men. Up there, rifle barrels peeking out from the rooftops. Instantly, the cavalry soldiers threw themselves off the side of their horses, their hearts pumping as they waited for the first shots from the entrenched rebel forces to fire any second now. But they waited. And waited. And waited some more. No shots. Cautiously, they raised their heads up. They could see the rifle barrels plain as day. I have to imagine that the first person to realize it swore loudly, maybe at the man who had raised the alarm in the first place. Others would have joined in, out of humiliation or exasperation, once the all-clear was sounded. Because what they saw poking out from the rooftops were not rifle barrels at all, but canales, or water spouts. Maybe at that moment... The cavalry commander knew that his company and this incident would become a running joke, which it did. Or maybe he was too concerned with a more pressing matter. Where were the rebels? Because it soon became obvious there weren't any there, and that the Union cavalry had just taken Tucson on May 20th, 1862, without having to fire a single shot. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 40, Taking Tucson. Today, I want to start out by thanking alert listener North O for pointing out a linguistic slip I made in the last episode. That is to say, I said cavalry instead of cavalry when talking about mounted soldiers. Truth be told, it's a linguistic slip I've done my entire life, as my particular branch of the Western American accent makes the words very close in pronunciation. But thanks for keeping me honest, North, and I promise to be a little more careful going forward. Still, it's good to know that 40 episodes in, all my corrections so far have been over pronunciation rather than factual errors. That's something to hang my hat on, at least. Anyway, the cavalry's dramatic entrance into Tucson came a little over a month after the skirmish at Picacho Pass which had caused the advance Union force to not only pull up short, but actually retreat a little to the Odom villages along the Gila, some 90 miles northwest of the city. However, orders soon arrived from the force's overall commander, Colonel James Henry Carlton, to Lieutenant Colonel Joseph R. West to advance on Tucson. Ever the tactician, and with an especially keen eye for logistics, Carlton's orders carried numerous points of advice on approaching the city and taking it should the rebels decide to dig in. Suitably chastised after the capture of his friend, Captain William McCleave, and the semi-humiliation suffered at Picacho Pass, Carlton's orders were actually not to advance on Tucson 
unless the odds were decidedly in the Union Army's favor. Also, maybe a bit spooked by that last encounter, the advancing troops did not head directly for Tucson using the road from Picacho. Instead, they headed further east, using the trails leading to and from the abandoned Fort Breckenridge at the junction of the Gila and San Pedro rivers. But finally, in late May, it was time to advance on Tucson itself. Anticipation was high about what to expect in terms of close-quarters city fighting, and if the rebels would hold themselves up in adobe buildings with gun holes. Carlton's orders to West were that his men should keep their sabers sharp and definitely not underestimate the Confederates. And this explains why the first cavalry company to enter the city was so ready to see rifle barrels where there were only water spouts. What they didn't see, however, was rebel troops. Captain Sherrod Hunter and his men, who had been holding the city for nearly two months, were simply gone. To fully understand where Hunter and his troops went, we need to turn our attention back to New Mexico and how the war was going there. You might remember that February 1862 was a great month for the Confederate cause, partially due to the victory at Valverde on February 21st. But this victory also put Brigadier General Henry Hopkins Sibley into something of a quandary. Fort Craig, sitting just a few miles from Valverde, was still in Union hands, and his former commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Edward R.S. Camby, refused to surrender it. So Sibley was forced into deciding whether to take the fort, retreat, or continue marching up the Rio Grande. After consulting with his officers, Sibley chose to keep on marching, though it left an enemy stronghold in his rear and would stretch out his supply lines. Here we also see the first cracks in the Confederate facade, as a bitter quarrel developed between Sibley and the military governor of the Confederate Territory of Arizona, Lieutenant Colonel John R. Baylor. Baylor claimed that during the Battle of Valverde, Sibley had hid in an ambulance and raised a hospital flag for protection. He went on to call him an, quote, infamous coward and a disgrace to the Confederate states, end quote. Now, to be fair, Sibley had been in an ambulance that day, having turned command of the battle over to a subordinate because he claimed to have been feeling ill. But still, this fracturing of the Confederate leadership was a bad omen of things to come. However, that one crack aside, things continued to go great, as rebel forces went on to capture Albuquerque on March 2, 1862, and Santa Fe on March 10th. Sibley, just as he had done after first entering New Mexico the previous December, sent out a proclamation once again promising sunshine and unicorns, mainly in guarantees of amnesty to those who put down their arms, and that those who returned home to take up their daily lives would be protected. However, the Texans were met with a cool reception by the citizens of New Mexico. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the army was requisitioning supplies, mainly from Unionist farmers, something that was contrary to all of Sibley's promises so far. But funny enough, the most consequential battle over New Mexico was not fought by Lieutenant Colonel Camby, 
still hold up at Fort Craig, nor Sibley, who was either in Albuquerque or Santa Fe at the time. This, of course, was the Battle of Glorieta Pass. This battle is actually two separate encounters that occurred two days apart, on March 26th and March 28th, 1862, when Confederate forces hoping to take Fort Union in northwest New Mexico encountered a large force of volunteers from Colorado, known as the Pikes Peakers. Now, I'm not a military historian, and quite frankly, it's hard for me to keep straight what detachment of which army is doing what during these large-scale engagements. But put simply, this is how the battle unfolded. Early on March 26, a force of these Pikes Peakers moved to cut off a rebel force said to be on its way to Fort Union. The Union troops went through Glorieta Pass, a high mountain pass at the southern end of the Sangre de Cristo Range, just southeast of Santa Fe. On the western side of the pass, near a place called Apache Canyon, a fierce three-hour fight broke out. The Confederates at one point crossed a deep ravine and knocked out the bridge to keep the Colorado volunteers from following. However, a brazen and quasi-suicidal charge by the cavalry saw them leaping this ravine and engaging with the rebels. One Confederate soldier recalled, quote, They were regular demons in the shape of Pike's Peakers. On they came, but nothing like lead and iron seemed to stop them for we were pouring it into them from every side, like hail in a storm. How some of these men who charged us ever escaped death will ever be a wonder to me. End quote. Needless to say, the rebels were forced into a retreat. After a day to both bury the dead, tend to their wounded, and receive reinforcements, the two forces engaged yet again further east in Glorieta Pass itself. The battle that commenced on March 28th was a six-hour slugfest fought out in rocky forested terrain that made the cavalry essentially useless. It would be a whole podcast episode in and of itself to recount all the charges, countercharges, deployments, redeployments, and troop movements. But we have other things to do and places to be today, so let's just jump to the end. The Confederates were able to drive the Union forces back, making the actual battle a rebel victory. However, it's at the end of the day that they learned that the Colorado volunteers had been a bit sneakier than expected. You see, at the beginning of the day, a detachment of the Pikes Peakers had actually taken a long, arduous, circuitous route through the mountains to come around to the far side of the Confederate line. This group eventually made it to the Confederate camp, which was ironically not as guarded as it should have been because two companies of German immigrants heard the fighting of the main battle and went to join in, declaring that they had enlisted for glory and not to guard mules and provisions. The Union forces were able to quickly and decisively take the rebel camp, destroying the Confederate supply train and killing the army's mules and horses. Though both sides would claim victory in the aftermath of the battle, it was the destruction of the Confederate baggage train at the Battle of Glorieta Pass, sometimes called the Gettysburg of the West, that spelled the end of rebel plans for New Mexico. Sibley was in a bad spot, 
the only stockpile of supplies in the territory were in Union hands, in forts too well defended to attack. Though he controlled the capital of Santa Fe and the major population centers such as Albuquerque and Socorro, he could see that control was tenuous at best. So, the Confederate High Command made the decision to pull back, abandoning Santa Fe starting April 5th and Albuquerque a week later. Once again, the retreat of the Texan rebels could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself, as minor skirmishes occurred as the Confederates pulled out while avoiding being crushed by Union forces. But the main story here is that the rebels are in retreat, which is why we can now turn our attention back to Tucson. As I said at the beginning of the episode, the vanguard of the California Column marched into the city and were spooked by water spouts on May 20th, 1862. The cavalry quickly secured Tucson, and the next day five companies of infantry marched into town, playing Yankee Doodle to signal their arrival. It was from the Unionists still in town that they learned Hunter and all his men had left at the beginning of May. News of the Confederate retreat in New Mexico and the threat that the California Column posed had made staying in Tucson a suicide mission. Those Confederate supporters who had not retreated with Hunter decided that discretion was the better part of valor and had fled south into Mexico. The combination of Apache attacks, the Confederate occupation, and now the Union advance had each caused a little mini-exodus, leaving Tucson an abandoned shell of its former self. By one estimation, there were about 500 people still living in the old Pueblo, roughly a third of what there had been before the outbreak of hostilities. Once it became clear that no one else was poised to take the town, people eventually started returning. Carlton made sure to report to his superiors that his troops were, quote, hailed with great joy by all of the people, end quote. I find this hilarious because, A, there were not that many people left, and B, Hunter made the exact same comment when he took Tucson back in February. But before we let Hunter get away completely, we do have a parting gift for him. That quintessential 19th century Arizona experience of getting jumped by the Apache. On May 5th, 1861, literally a day after abandoning Tucson, Hunter and his men were at Dragoon Springs about 55 miles east of the city, when the Chiricahuans led by Cochise and the White Mountain Apache led by his ally Francisco attacked. All accounts I can find of this are brief. The Apache swooped in, killed four of Hunter's men, and stole 30 mules and 25 horses. After that final parting bloody nose, the rest of Hunter's retreat will go without incident. Though, I almost want to say to him, well, thanks for playing our game and better luck next time. But Hunter definitely isn't alone in getting banged up by the Apache hurricane. We've been focused so much on the tug of war between the Confederates and the Union the last few episodes that Cochise has been kind of in the background. But he hasn't been idle. So let's catch up with his war. When we last left him back in episode 37, it was July 1861, 
and Cochise's forces had just slaughtered those seven volunteers who were trying to carry the mail in the absence of the Butterfield line. With all his raiding, pillaging, and outright murder, Cochise and his force had essentially shut down all the main roads between Masilla and Tucson. Shortly after the slaughter of those seven men, Cochise and his force had retired to northern Chihuahua, where they traded their plunder for food and, importantly, more ammunition. Now, remember, this is the summer of 1861, so the Union forces are pulling out of forts in Arizona, and many Unionists are starting to abandon the territory too. Part of this exodus was a party of ranchers from the greater Tucson and Tubac area, known as the Ake Party, named for a 55-year-old farmer named Felix Grundy Ake. This wagon train originally planned to link up with the troops pulling out of Fort Buchanan and go with them as far as the Rio Grande, but soon discovered they were too late and the soldiers had already gone. Despite this setback, Ake and his company decided to proceed, figuring that the group's size would deter any Apache attack. The party, which pulled out of Tucson on August 15th, consisted of nine wagons with 24 men, 16 women, and seven children. With them, they carried most of their worldly possessions and a herd of 700 cattle, sheep, goats, and horses. Now, normally, yes, it was unusual for the Apache to go after a group this size. But with everything they were carrying, the group was, in the words of Edwin R. Sweeney, an open invitation to Cochise and Mongus Coloradas. As they wound their way toward New Mexico, the party did hear rumors about a Mexican group being killed by a force of some 200 Apache just up the same road, but Ake and his men considered these reports unreliable. Although it would turn out that those reports were pretty darn reliable. Their party was ambushed in Cook's Canyon by a force under Cochise and Mangas Coloradas, which did add up to more than 200 warriors. Now, the party was able to circle most of the wagons, though one family had to abandon theirs, and the last wagon, full of most of the women and children, fled west as soon as the fighting started. And that fighting lasted for hours, with casualties exacted on both sides. Finally, though, the Apache retreated, but not without the plunder from the lead wagon and something like 400 head of cattle and 900 sheep. A few months after this, in September 1861, Cochise and Mangas Coloradas planned out an attack on the hated miners at Pinos Altos in New Mexico. Remember, these are the men who had supposedly whipped Mangas Coloradas when he had tried to tell them about Richard Vanes of Ore. And even if that story is false, like we talked about, Coloradas always maintained a special hatred for these miners, who were working in his band's traditional territory. In the early hours of September 27, 1861, Cochise and Coloradas attacked the main town and scattered mining camps with a force that again was estimated to be around 200. And for reference, remember that is twice the number of men that Hunter had with him when he took Tucson. This battle at Pinos Altos was a ferocious affair with hand-to-hand fighting near the main store in town. 
the miners eventually resorted to firing cannons full of nails and buckshot toward the store to scatter their foe. And eventually, the Apache had to withdraw when the miners were able to counterattack. The Apache dead were numbered at 10, with an estimated 20 more wounded. The town had 5 dead, with 7 wounded. By the numbers, the Americans had won this battle. But the attack was a show of strength for the Apache, and had its desired result. Soon miners were leaving for the relative safety of Santa Fe or Mesilla. Meanwhile, Cochise retreated back to Mexico to lick his wounds and mend fences in Fronteras, where hostility between the Apache and Mexican troops had cropped up again. And it's in the Mexican reports from these peace feelers that we find Cochise referred to as the Capitan Grande, or Big Chief of the Apache, or, quote, the head of them all, end quote. He now really had become Cochise, the great and terrible, able to muster Apache from disparate bands in numbers never seen before. The report also mentioned that Cochise and his men were waiting for the Americans to eventually come and try to punish him for everything that he had done since the Bascom Affair. But as we know, the Americans were a little too occupied with the earthquake that was the Civil War to batten down the hatches for the Apache hurricane. So at the end of 1861 and the beginning of 1862, Cochise and his followers had returned to southern Arizona, especially the Huachuca, Dragoon, and Chiricahua Mountains. We also find him during this time sort of pacing around Sylvester Maury's Patagonia mine, like a fox thinking exactly how he could break into the hen house. Maury himself would say that Cochise had threatened to, quote, wipe it out as he had all other American settlements, end quote. This is one of the reasons that Maori turned to Hunter once the Confederates had taken Tucson. As way of explanation, the mine owner wrote, quote, If the devil would have helped me fight Apaches, I would have asked his help at any price except my soul. End quote. Unfortunately, Hunter turned Maori down, saying, quote, the precarious position in which I am placed will not permit me to take my command immediately to your assistance. End quote. And, as it turned out, that position never got any less precarious, and Hunter was unable to ever lend a hand before having to retreat from Tucson. Hunter's reluctance to help Maori was more a product of his fear of an invading Union army than an indifference toward the Apache. The hostile Amerindians were a headache for everyone, civilian and soldier alike. Confederate Lieutenant Colonel John R. Baylor, the military governor for Arizona, soon found that, in the words of author Ray C. Colton, quote, no stagecoach, mail carrier, or traveler on trail or road was safe, end quote. So as part of his territorial government, a force of volunteers known as the Arizona Guards was formed, primarily to tangle with the Apache. Now, these were hard supporters of Baylor, though early state historian James H. McClintock says a contemporary report shows that half these guards were actually Unionists pressed into service. The guards, including Lieutenant Jack Swilling, 
the same man who we saw escort McCleave to Masilla last week and who will eventually open Swilling's ditch in the Phoenix area, had the impossible task of reopening the road between Tucson and Masilla. A group of the guards would actually manage to ambush some Apache in the Florida mountains near Cook's Canyon in August 1861, resulting in something of a token victory they could point to. But Baylor was far from satisfied. I haven't been able to mention it up to this point, but the lieutenant colonel is what we would charitably call today an Indian fighter, which is really just code for someone who hates Amerindians and wants to see them all killed. And as we'll see in a second, that is not really any exaggeration on my part. Baylor had spent his adult life in Texas, and a good deal of that time tangling with the Comanches, mostly by volunteering to fight them. Though he had actually been an Indian agent in the 1850s, which appears to have done virtually nothing to curb his hostility. During the spring of 1862, after receiving reinforcements from Sibley, Baylor had gone on the offensive, chasing down a group of Apache that had stolen a hundred horses from the Confederates. He actually pursued them into Chihuahua, Mexico, past Hanos, before capturing nine of them. And believing himself justified, Baylor had the four adults killed on the spot and the children taken captive. On another occasion, though no source gives a clear date as to when exactly, it is claimed that Baylor had a sack of poisoned flour distributed to Amerindians, resulting in the death of about 60 people but his most infamous contribution, and the reason I can say with little reservation that Baylor hated Amerindians, was an order he gave in March 1862. Writing to the commander of the Arizona Guards, he referenced a recent peace proposal by some local tribes by saying, quote, The Congress of the Confederate States has passed a law declaring extermination of all hostile Indians. You will therefore use all possible means to persuade the Apaches or any other tribes to come in for making peace, and, when you get them together, kill all the grown Indians and take the children prisoners, and sell them to defray the expenses of killing the Indians. Buy whiskey and such other goods as may be necessary for the Indians. Leave nothing undone to assure success, and have a sufficient number of men around to allow no Indians to escape. Say nothing about your orders till the time arrives, and be cautious how you let the Mexicans know it. To your judgment I entrust this important matter, and look for success against these cursed pests who have already murdered over 100 men in this territory. End quote. Now, I won't go so far as to say that Baylor's orders and attitudes were all that much different, or his rhetoric more vitriolic than his contemporaries, but this extermination order shows you just how deep the hatred really went. And also, to be fair, it wasn't like Cochise and his Apaches were fighting a noble war either. As we've seen, torture and the killing of women and children were not uncommon in their raids. The real irony, however, is that despite his claims, the Confederate Congress had passed no such extermination law, and this order would eventually result in Baylor's termination. Once Jefferson Davis heard about it, he immediately relieved Baylor of his duties as the governor of Arizona and actually revoked his commission as a lieutenant colonel. 
though Racy Colton points out that by the time Davis reacted to the order, the Confederate retreat had made Baylor the governor of Arizona in name only. Now, Baylor is going to show no remorse, writing in December 1862 that despite being censured by his own president and losing his position and command, he did not disavow his order. And he would be defended by the Arizona delegate to the Confederate Congress, who wrote that it was understood in the territory at the time that Confederate policy was to exterminate all natives. He also made the same argument that I just laid out, namely that the order was justified because the Apaches seemed to have no compunctions about trying to exterminate all Americans. However, he was not persuasive enough for Baylor to be restored as governor. Instead, Baylor went back to Texas, where he was elected a congressional representative in 1863. He would serve in this position through 1865 and would eventually regain his commission. Also, if I do this right, he will be name-checked in our story one more time before the war ends. But just to wrap things up for now, after the Civil War, he will settle in San Antonio, and during the U.S. Army's war with the Lakota Sioux, he would actually offer his Indian fighting services yet again. Finally, he'll die in 1893 at the age of 71. But like I said, while the revoking of his commission might have stung personally, the loss of the governorship was a really minor blow, as New Mexico had been abandoned by the rebels. On May 4, 1862, the very same day that Hunter and his company lit out of Tucson, Sibley sent a report to his superiors in Richmond that he had made it back to Fort Bliss in Texas. However, most of his men were strung out in a 50-mile long line behind him. He did pay plenty of compliments to his men, saying they had beaten their enemy at every turn, despite overwhelming odds, and had gone from a ragtag collection of volunteers to a well-trained, well-armed army. However, he also said, quote, Except for its political, geographic position, the territory of New Mexico is not worth a quarter of the blood and treasure expended in its conquest. End quote. Despite skirmishes continuing into May, and a small detachment still being in New Mexico as late as July 1862, the writing was on the wall. Confederate dreams of establishing a hold on the Southwest seemed dead for now. Meanwhile, May was a busy month for the Union force in Tucson. On May 15th, Carlton, who had actually not been in Arizona for most of what we talked about so far, left Fort Yuma to head toward Tucson. Just before doing so, he issued an executive order that officially named the force under his command as the Column from California, or the California Column, which is basically what I've been calling them anyway because that's really what they are. While waiting for Carleton, those in Tucson established a camp right outside the city named Fort Lowell in honor of a Union general who'd recently been killed. A small force was even sent in May to re-establish Fort Breckenridge at the junction of the San Pedro and Gila Rivers. This small force renamed it Fort Stanford after the governor of California, and the Stars and Stripes were once again raised above it. However, this reoccupation would not last long, as the Union troops had destroyed most of it while retreating east the previous year, and in the swirl of everything, it had lost most of its strategic importance. 
But we won't let that dampen the enthusiasm of the Union troops now, will we? In fact, I think that is a pretty darn good place to leave them for today. So join me next week as Carlton enters Tucson and instantly decides he needs to clean up the place. Also, it's now his turn to come to blows with the other great commander in the region. None other than Cochise. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.